All right, so good evening, everybody. Our topic for tonight is czarist hatred of the Jews. We've got a small in-house crowd tonight. So for centuries, the the Romanov dynasty, the czars, hey, Teddy. So for centuries, the czars refused to let Jews live in Russia or even to visit. But the partitions of Poland in 1772, 1793, and 1795, by Russia, Prussia, and Austria, so the tripartite division of Poland, gave Russia approximately one million new residents in the newly controlled Western provinces. The czars, as defenders of the Orthodox faith, and that doesn't mean Orthodox Judaism, that means Orthodox Christianity, did not want to open up their country to Jews. The fact that they now had Jews was sort of an accident an unwelcome accident. Compromise developed, whereby Jews could remain in the former Polish regions, but could not enter the heartland of Russia. This was the creation of the Pale of Settlement, Pale meaning an enclosed area. It comprised 25 regions, uh, stretching from the Black Sea to the Baltic Sea. There is a misconception about the Pale of Settlement that it was somehow heavily Jewish. It wasn't. At the high point, it was 9% Jewish. But it should be made perfectly clear that the other 90% of the people who lived there were not mostly Russian. They were other ethnic groups, whether Ukrainian, Polish, German, Turk, what have you, uh, but not pure Russian. So even as the czars tried to keep the Jews apart from so-called real Russians in the heartland of the country, they also supported the seemingly opposite policy of assimilation and Russification. So keep the, the nefarious Jew away from the real good Russians, but make the Jew more Russian. Now, how do you do that? Well, by coercive tactics. Now, the irony, of course, is that you're trying Russification in a region where the local Gentiles are not Russian. There's something other than that which leads to further inter-ethnic tension. For example, in Polish-speaking regions, or for that matter, even Ukrainian-speaking regions, if the Jew is seen as a bulwark of Russian culture rather than Yiddishist Jewish culture, then they're hated not only for being a Jew, but for imposing the big guy's non-Jewish culture on the little guy who has their own national aspirations. It's a recipe for ill will all around. Okay. Now, uh, Russia adopted a policy of active intervention um, in internal Jewish affairs. And this was something they borrowed from the enlightened thinkers from Germany, let's say Christian Wilhelm von Dohm, who believed that you needed to change the Jew, the Jew needed some kind of a reform to make them worthy of citizenship in the modern state. Although, as we'll see, unlike in Germany, where the progressives believe that you give the rights simultaneous with, with expected changes, in Russia it was, well, we expect things from you, but you're going to get nothing in the here and now, and you're lucky if you get anything ever. Okay, so reconstruction via enlightened absolutism. What would these methods include? How do you get the Jew, in the, you know, for the czar who doesn't like the Jew as he currently is, how do you get him to be better, whatever better might mean? So one thing is, the abolition 
of Jewish corporatist institutions like the Kahal and other things as well, with a special damage done to the rabbinate. Um, productivization of Jewish economic activities. Now, productivization of activities, what does that mean? What's productive and what's not productive? So what's not productive in the eyes of a pre-modern thinker is anything that involves being a middleman, being a, a person who gets a, a good from its point of origin to the consumer, but you are not the person who manufactured it and you're not the consumer. You're somewhere in between. That's not productive. Productive is making things, whether foodstuffs or usable good. So keep the Jews away from exploitative activities. What are especially exploitative activities? What's the most classic one? Money lending, but also in-keeping, in-keeping and the allied uh, uh, endeavor of booze-making. Okay, getting the peasants drunk. So keep them away from these things and bring them closer to manual labor. Also, modern education, which will also have conversionist overtones as well, as we'll see soon enough. But modern education, meaning to wean people away from traditional religious learning. Instead of the old line cheder, you send them to a secular gymnasia where they'll learn Russian and other usable subjects. So the problem is that unlike in Central Europe, Russia dictated policies without immediately offering meaningful incentives, which was then a disincentive to go along for the ride. And that's why Jewish life in Eastern Europe remained fairly traditional and culturally so-called backward by modern standards far longer than it would to points further west. Now, both the czars and the Soviets adopted this interventionist approach, uh, each in its own way. The czars in a pre-capitalist, pre-socialist environment, sort of a corporatist rigged system environment, and the, the, and the, and the Soviets in a socialist and communist environment. They would, and the, the czar's association with Jewish capitalists would intensify as the 19th century went along. They'd get very cozy with certain key Jewish families, but we're not at there just yet. Now, this interventionist approach would help create and reinforce popular anti-Semitic stereotypes. How so? If somebody needs to be reformed, it means as they are, they are now, they're bad. And if they're bad, well, then you have reason to dislike them. And you could harp on those character traits that you think are especially bad and say that it doesn't just apply to one or two or three Jews, but all Jews collectively. Yes, and they'll make very strong efforts. Now, Catherine the Great, Catherine the Second, who was uh, the Tsarina from 1762 to 1796, Washley wasn't so terrible when compared to some of her successors, and we'll go through them one at a time. Uh, Later occupants of the Romanov throne would be far worse, but even she was no friend of the Jews. Russian officials from the earliest uh, times after the partition of Poland saw Jews as religious fanatics whose fanaticism had to be broken and their religious beliefs civilized. So remember, they're looking at not the Jew of Berlin or the Jew of Paris or the Jew of London, but the Jew of Vilna, the Jew of Minsk, of Pinsk, 
and, and they're seeing something they don't want to see. Okay. The pale of sentiment grew, arose by accident and grew over time. Initially, it was only 15 provinces. It would go to 25 provinces. It would get bigger, but then it would also get smaller because, as we'll see, the Melos 100 years later will contract and restrict the areas where Jews might live, forcing them into cities and towns as opposed to the countryside. In 1802, Gavril de Javin, the Minister of Justice, called for certain key reforms of the Jewish community and Jewish life. One was for a chief rabbi to discipline all other rabbis, but not a chief rabbi like uh, Rav Herzog or Rav Gorin, but rather one they could manipulate. Now, in the Soviet era, they would have such things. Okay, and without naming names, I, I interacted with one of them who survived into the Putin era. Um, but again, without naming names. So there, it was possible at a later time to have a complicit rabbinate. But early on, that didn't exist. The goal of this minister of the interior, uh, of the minister of justice, was to say, let's find somebody who will do our bidding, and all the other rabbis in the country will be subservient to this figure. Then, modern education, ban the Jews from the alcohol trade, abolish the kahal. Abolish the kahal. So this is the Jewish communal organization. To abolish it, which would ultimately happen in 1844 under Nicholas I, would mean that it would have to be replaced with some other formal structure. That formal structure will eventually become dominated by the wealthy elite uh, and not be as useful to the Jewish community as as it was before. Now, also, this uh, minister of justice called for reducing the number of synagogues. Too many shuls. Get rid of some of the shuls. Then get rid of the Talmud study. Let the Jews learn other things. Abolish special Jewish garb. No more payas, no more long kaftan with the, with, the, with the fringes dangling down the abacanfus. Don't let the Jew look too Jewish in the public sphere. By the way, this is the exact opposite of what? Of the medieval approach and the Nazi approach of having a, Jew, a yellow star or having a badge that identified you as a Jew. There the goal was, oh, that's him. We know who he is. The approach here was let them not look Jewish as a means of downgrading the whole Jewish culture so that it could disappear altogether. Also, he called for massive relocation of Jews into agriculture, forced labor on roads and canal construction and in government workshops. In other words, the economic profile of the Jew should be determined not by the Jews themselves, but by government interference and in ways that will materially benefit the state. The actual laws passed by Alexander I, uh, who reigned from 1801 to 1825, was much more mild. Still, the rabbis lost a key power, the power of the cherem. Without the power of the cherem, it meant that the Jewish community was going to to eventually disintegrate uh, and not be that cohesive unit it once was. The kahal was undermined from within, even while it still existed. The Chayim made a difference because it kept people in line with communal norms and standards. And if you were an outlier who might be an outlier in that you agreed with the government over this or that reform of Jewish life, you would you could be ostracized if there was the power of the Chayim. But without it, uh, 
You never know. Now, it happened to be that because of the divide between Hasidim and Misnagdim, the loss of the power of the Cherim meant that neither side could inflict its, uh, can, can impose itself on the other with a general division within Jewish communal life, for better or for worse. Okay. Now, Russia, the law also fostered the development of a Jewish plutocracy. In other words, there would be a bunch of people who did really well for themselves, but only a small core that did really well for themselves. Russia encouraged class differentiation among the Jewish population. Why? Because Jews are too, too united to begin with. They're, you know, I'm Yisrael Chai. Okay, we have our slogans, but we're together as one. Well, guess what? If materially you are now stratified, then you're no longer one. The rich guys look after the rich guys. The poor guys look after the poor guys. Everybody is for their own, you know, quintile of the of, of the economic uh, division. Okay, well, Nicholas the first came on the scene in 1825, and he was a bad character. Among the various czars, the worst were Nicholas the first and Nicholas the second. So, Nick, Nick number one. His most famous contribution to the history of anti-Semitism is the imposition of military service upon Jewish males for a period of 25 years, from the age of 18 to the age of 43. Now, bear in mind, people didn't live that long in the old days. You know, 43, you were already uh, over the hill. So the, the vast bulk of your life was spent in military service. Why did he do this? What was the main purpose? What was he trying to accomplish by imposing such a demanding military service on the Jewish men. Quote, so quote, the chief benefit to be derived from drafting the Jews is the certainty that it will move them most effectively to change their religion. He was a Fabrenta Russian Orthodox believer, and he wanted people to convert. Jews typically don't convert, but with enough social pressure and by making you miserable in the army setting where you're uh, isolated and are surrounded by people who are not of the same faith as you, so the peer, pre- the peer pressure will be very great. Russians also. What was that? I thought Russians also served. Russians also served a, a lengthy period of time, not as long as the Jews did, however, because as the Jews had an extra period of service that was imposed specifically on them, which we'll get to in a second. World War II, probably not, but we'll get to World War I, maybe. To escape service. Right. So so we're going to get to what people did to avoid the draft. Now, in fact, very few soldiers converted, uh, having been drafted at the age of 18 and up. So they were already grown men with firm religious beliefs and not wanting to offend the, you know, the, uh, the religious sensitivities of their family or their upbringing. So what did the government do? They enacted a special training period specifically for Jews of six years, taking boys at the age of 12. Now at 12 already, you're still young and impressionable. And then the likelihood of converting out of the faith is far higher. Parents desperately tried to get their kids exempted from the draft. Self-mutilation was one method that was attempted by many people. And if you got caught trying it, there could be consequences for that also, aside from the physical harm. Wealthy Jews bribed their way out or hired substitutes from among poor Jews. So here, poor parents might sell their kid down the river 
to get a couple of shekels or rubles from a wealthy parent to get their kid out, out of the system. When the community could not meet its quota, that's when the worst abuses happened. Who comes on the scene now? The choppers. The choppers would grab kids off the street. The choppers were Jews. And how young were the kids that they were grabbing? Could be as young as eight or ten. Really little kids. And military officials joked that many of the young Jewish boys would die even before making it to their destination. So I'll read to you an account uh, of this very scenario. This is said by uh, um, a Russian writer. No, not epidemics, but they just die like flies. A Jew boy, you know, is such a frail, weakly creature, like a skinned cat. He is not used to tramping in the mud for 10 hours a day and eating biscuits. Then again, being among strangers, no father, nor mother, nor petting. Well, they cough and cough until they cough themselves into their graves. And I ask you, what is it to the, what uses it to the authorities? What can they do with these little boys? They brought the children and formed them into regular ranks. It was one of the most awful sights I'd ever seen, those poor, poor children. Boys of 12 or 13 somehow survived it, but not the little fellows of 8 or 10. Pale, exhausted, with frightened faces, they stood in the thick, clumsy Russian soldiers' overcoats with stand-up collars, fixing helpless, pitiful eyes on the garrison soldiers who were roughly getting them into the ranks. The white lips, the blue rings under their eyes bore witness to fever or chill. And these sick children without care or kindness, exposed to the icy winds that blow unobstructed from the Arctic Ocean, were going to their graves. So here, the, the, the Russians basically conceded that they weren't getting much of military usage out of these kids. Likely, a lot of them would die of frostbite or who knows what, or, or, or abuse. But... They did get plenty of others at a little bit of an older age who did function as soldiers for long stretches of time. Some small, small number of Jewish soldiers rose through the ranks of the military to a fairly high position without converting to Russian Orthodoxy. Two-thirds of the, of the Cantonists, this is the Cantonist system, introduced by Nicholas I. Two-thirds of all Cantonists converted to, to, to Russian Orthodox Church. One-third did not. Of the third that did not, most remained low-level soldiers, but a handful, about 15 of them, went to a very high level uh, and served honorably and admirably uh, in the Russian army. Okay. As Jews, not as religious Jews, they couldn't observe their, their religious rights uh, while in Russian uniform, but they, they did stay Jewish. Okay. So Nicholas tried to get Jews to convert by opening up state schools for Jews. This is in the 1840s. Few Jewish parents sent their kids to these schools, though. Um, now, Nicholas was even more determined than his older brother uh, to end um, Jewish separateness by productivization, education, religious reform, and uh, you know, officially, the conscripts were not, were not forced to convert. But again, there was tremendous pressure to do so. In 1844, he abolished the Kahal. Uh, he tried productivization, and there was mild success there. 40,000 Jews were living on agricultural colonies by the end of his life in 1855. Uh, in 1840, when, when they attempted to set up the state schools to teach secular subjects and less religion, this um, required the cooperation of some Jewish figures to get it done. 
which famous later American rabbi was involved in this effort, but eventually ran away, realizing that he was being bamboozled into a, a missionary type activity. A rabbi who would come to New York and then go to Cincinnati, who wants to in the chat identify who he was. You have five seconds to get the answer right or you all fail for tonight. Okay, Rabbi Max Lilienthal, the, co- the collaborator of Isaac Mayer Wise in the reform movement. Okay, so he was brought in to specialize in these state schools, but he realized they were just out to convert the Jews to Christianity, and he ran away. Um, the, the Russian government attempted to have crown yeshivas, rabbinical seminaries to ordain rabbis who would be cooperative rabbis, who would have some secular education. And there were such yeshivas in Vilna and in Jitomir, and people did graduate from such seminaries. And it wasn't a shanda and a harpa to, to be a graduate of such a seminary, but people did view you with a, with a measure of suspicion. And the gedolim didn't go to the crown yeshivas, let's put it that way. All right. Now, there was a nascent Russian haskalah, which we spoke about a number of years ago when we did some courses on uh, heroes and villains of modern Jewish history. We spoke about, about Gordon uh, and some other figures of the Haskalah. But for our purposes tonight in a, in a course on anti-Semitism, the question is, what did the Russian government think of these people? Of all the Jews out there, who would they, they would be most favorably disposed towards, you would think it would be masculine types who want to see the Jewish community less culturally backward and less Talmudically oriented and more towards modern life. But in fact, the, the Russian bigots, the anti-Semites, regarded the masculine with suspicion and considered them rationalistic, rootless Jewish cosmopolitans. Now, the rootless cosmopolitan slur would play an important role later on in the communistic era, but already even in, in, the, in the mid-19th century, this rootless cosmopolitan idea was, well, we don't trust you. You're hardly a Jew. You're certainly not a Russian. Okay. Now, Nicholas the, uh, Nicholas the I's tenure can be summed up very briefly as Jews are forced to give, but they get nothing in return. They get nothing in return. No, no, just old-fashioned uh, czarist anti-Semitism. Okay. Now, Nicholas I died in 1855. Alexander II took over, and it was time for some change. It was time for change. What kind of change? Well, he announced plans to modernize Russia, to provide education, equal justice, tolerance, and humaneness for every Russian citizen. Does that include Jews? Maybe, maybe. And in fact, the Jews would think this is a, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. or some, Maybe not the end of the tunnel, but there's some light here. Something good might happen. He announced the reduction in military service from 25 years down to six years, a tremendous reduction. And he eliminated the preparatory period for young Jewish boys. So the Cantonist system was over. Still Jews had to serve and people didn't want to serve. Uh, uh, I mean, my great-great-grandfathers did serve in the Russian army, uh, although they, by legend they played fiddle for the czar, uh, the, the, the musical troupe. They didn't fight any wars. So people didn't want to go, but it was, it was not as bad as it had been previously. In March 1861, 
Alexander II freed the serfs. The 47 million serfs of Russia were freed. This is two years before Abraham Lincoln gives the Emancipation Proclamation to free the, the slaves of the American South. Still, not everyone was equal before the law. Uh, Alexander expected the Jews to earn their civil rights through moral improvement. But what does moral improvement actually mean? Nothing other than conversion to Christianity. Okay, so that's very clear. Alexander II increased the number of categories of Jews who could live outside the pale. So one of the, the, the perks that a person might want is to get out of this constricted space where the economy stinks, where finding Parnassa is a challenge, and where people are on the whole pretty bigoted. So to live outside the pale in the big Russian cities, the modern Russian cities, that was, uh, you know, people wanted that. But who's allowed to do it? The answer, successful businessmen, Jewish, high-level Jewish artisans, university graduates, and army veterans. So if you could contribute something to the state, either with military service, with your professional expertise, or with your kesef, you got to get out of the pale. It was hoped that these Jews would energize the economy, and they did. Jewish capitalists were at the forefront of Russian industry in the latter half of the 19th century. More Jews started going to government schools because it meant avoiding army service. So whereas previously, in the previous generation, the the Jewish parents eschewed sending their kids to the Russian schools out of fear of conversionist uh, pressures, now, send your kid to school, Russian schools, they'll get out of the army, it'll be good for them to make panos. Despite um, such successes, or maybe even because of such successes, anti-Semitism intensified in 1870s Russia. Now, bear in mind, it intensified in 1870s Germany and 1870s France. So the 1870s wasn't exactly our best decade. 1880s would get even worse. There'd be violent assaults against Jews in the 1880s. But at this time, for reasons that are specific to Russia, Jew hatred is on the rise. There was a popular belief that Jews were becoming too powerful and had too many privileges. Yeah. So Jews were, were, were regarded as posing a danger to Russia. It was thought that too many Jews enrolled in state schools, especially secondary schools like the gymnasia and universities, higher level, would lead to Jews dominating the white-collar professions of law, engineering, medicine, and architecture. So when there's competition between ethnic groups for a limited number of spaces and a limited number of educational institutions, and there can only be so many white-collar professionals and Jews are disproportionately entering those uh, lines of work, well, the ethnic majority will say, you're stealing our jobs. You're stealing our jobs. Okay. Jews were held responsible for the rising revolutionary movement. So remember, from the 1870s and onward, up until the end of uh, World War I and the Russian, the, the October Revolution, so ferment, political ferment, is all over the place in Russia, and the, the czarist regime is scared that something bad's going to happen. Now, eventually, two of the czars are assassinated. One will be in 1881, Alexander II, the supposedly good guy, and Nicholas II, after he abdicates, because uh, Lenin orders them to be butchered, the whole family. So Jews are accused of being... Um, The, the, the brains behind revolutionary movements, but Jews are also accused of being 
the leaders and the brains behind socialism and capitalism. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it logical to say that Jews are, are simultaneously guilty of socialism and capitalism? So there are those historians who would like to argue that this is an illogical uh, assertion by the, by the Russian conservative aristocracy. Uh, you, you pick your choice. Either the Jews are to the left or the Jews are to the right. But the truth of the matter is that the, the Jews could be equally guilty of fomenting socialism and capitalism because Jews are not a monolith. Jewish industrialists could be at the forefront of capitalistic innovations in the, in the Russian economy and benefiting handsomely from those innovations, while the, the proletarian underclass and ideologues sipping coffee at a cafe and writing subversionary literature could be leading the socialist charge, and they could also be Jews. Okay, well, attempts to marshal facts to prove that Jews are not ruining society were conveniently ignored. An economic survey was done that showed that Gentiles were financially better off in the pale than they were outside the pale. So for all the talk that the Jews are exploiting the goyim, the goyim were economically better in the pale than outside of it. Okay, but that's, that report was suppressed. Nobody should know that that's true. You know, fake news. So widespread belief was that Jews were hucksters and users of dubious honesty who will enrich themselves by exploiting gullible Russians. So it's interesting, the Russian intellectual class, but I don't mean like the progressive intellectuals, I mean like the conservative bigoted intellectuals, just you know, the ones who, who, who wrote on behalf of the government, they tended to see their own peasantry and citizenry as stupid and that the Jews could easily dupe them. Now, usually we don't tend to, uh, countries don't tend to think of their own populations or, or say openly about their own population, you're a bunch of idiots. Granted, in a democracy, you can't, you can't insult your own voter because then he won't be your voter. In a non-democracy, you can get away with it because there's no price to be paid, at least not, not immediately. So the Russians thought of their own citizenry as morons who could be bamboozled by the Jews. Uh, uh, let's not get into that. Okay, so now, anger at the Jews also was because foreign Jews were considered responsible for Russia's foreign policy failures, in particular, Benjamin Disraeli, not exactly a practicing Jew, uh, drove a hard bargain against Russia at the Congress of Berlin in 1878, where the, the, the territories that were liberated from Ottoman control by Russia and then became independent nations, uh, the international agreement was these places would have to emancipate the Jews. And Russia didn't like that. So Disraeli, the ex-Jew or the descendant of Jews, was identified as you know, equaling Russian Jewry, and they're hurting us. They're hurting our foreign policy, so we're going to take it out against our local Jews. Okay. Conditions improved slightly under the, the enlightened rule of Alexander II. Some Jews, including university graduates and successful industrialists, industrialists did move into the Russian interior and lived well. So there is a history of Jewish success, Jewish material comfort, and even Jewish cultural ferment in St. Petersburg and in Moscow in the 1860s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. There is that. The Gunsberg family 
were patrons of the arts and of Jewish learning uh, in the interior of Russia. But it was for a small section of the population. That most were still mired in the muck of the, of the pale. Government officials in the, in the latter decades of the 19th century lost faith in the power of amalgamation and assimilation. Basically, two, two generations of attempting to Russify the Jews hasn't worked. They still are identifiably Jewish and they're not converting to Christianity. So we give up hope on it. And the educational system was treated with malevolent neglect. Uh, and in fact, Russians no, didn't, did not want Jews to develop a new Jewish identity. So there was actually a desire for the Jews not to create a, a, a vibrant new Jewish culture for themselves. It was preferred that either they be old backward Orthodox or convert to Christianity. Um, the government feared that Jews were developing industry too rapidly to the, to the detriment of agriculture and that Jewish capitalists were hurting Christians. So Jewish success was seen as dangerous to the interests of the state. In the view of the Slavophiles, the educated Jew was the worst kind of atheist. Now, the truth of the matter is, it's not just the Slavophiles who think that. There are plenty in the Western world who think the same thing, that the, that the educated Jew turns atheist is like the most uh, corrupting influence in the whole of, of Western civilization. Uh, and Slavophilism was intimately bound up with anti-Semitism. The glorification of the peasant was coupled with the accusation that the Jews are exploiting that peasant. And this dominated right-wing thinking in Russian political circles. So everything changes on March 1st, 1881. Why? Alexander II is shot dead by a group of conspiratorialist anarchists. Quote, the sun that had risen over Jewish life in the 1850s was suddenly extinguished. Anti-Semitism would now burst forth uh, with a kind of ferocity not previously seen, or at least not seen in 200 years. Huh? Yes. So Jews felt like they were living on top of a volcano about to erupt. Rumors were spreading like wildfire. One of the assassins, in fact, was Jewish. Of the 12 people arrested, indicted, and convicted of assassinating the Tsar, one was a Jewish woman named Gessia Gelfman. Rumors spread that Alexander II, the new czar, wanted to avenge his father's death by having people beat up the Jews. The czar denied that he ever said such a thing, but Russians were convinced that that denial was just to placate foreigners. So now we have one of these things where, like in the Dreyfus affair, nobody believed anything that wasn't according to their narrative. Your narrative must always be correct. So if you're a Jew hater who's interested in, in, in conducting a pogrom, it's great if the, the, the head of state, the head of government favors you conducting this pogrom. So to say, oh, the czar wants us to beat up the Jews is great. So you hear it through the, through the grapevine, well, the czar actually denies that he said it. Yeah, well, he was forced to by moralists from the outside world. Okay. She was a Jewish anarchist, not much. Now, pogrom comes from the Russian word for thunder. The pogroms begin in Elizabethgrad on April 15th, 1881. The, uh, the classic description of this pogrom is the cloud of feathers. What's the cloud of feathers? When you stab the pillow and all of a sudden the feathers come out. So the assault on the Jewish home 
not necessarily physical violence against a person, although that will happen plenty too, but the assault on Jewish material possessions, entering someone's abode and tearing it to pieces and leaving them with nothing usable. Okay, Synagogues and Torah scrolls were destroyed. People were nervous. I'll now read to you from what happened in Minsk. It's happening mostly in the Ukraine, in the Southlands. The northern part of the Pale was, for the most part, spared of the 1881-1882 pogroms. That's why it's called in Hebrew, Sufot Banegev, storms in the south, because it's the southern Russia. Later pogroms would get further north. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, in the city of Minsk, the mood was dark. Business slowed down. The Jews left their stores. They hurried through the streets uneasily, casting suspicious glances about them. They were on guard in case of a pogrom. They were ready to fight desperately. The air was charged. An explosion was expected at any moment. The Jewish market women who came into my home, filled with fear and horror, told of rough threats made against them by farmers who brought their wares to the market twice a week, speaking openly of an imminent attack, of the imminent murder of all the Jews. My husband, too, brought such news from the bank. And the children brought it home from school. The Jews of Minsk armed for battle. Their homes became fortresses. Everyone according to his way, whatever possible. One might provide himself with strong clubs. Another might by mixing sand and tobacco to throw in the eyes of attackers. Boys as young as eight, girls as young as ten, took part in terrible preparations and were courageous, unafraid in the streets. Now listen to this one. Uh, Nobody felt safe even in his own house. The Christian servants who had worked for us for some time, suddenly became impolite and impertinent so that we were forced to protect ourselves in our own home. After the servants had gone to bed for the evening, I took all the knives and hammers out of the kitchen and locked them up in a cupboard in my bedroom. I put up a barricade secretly in front of the door, consisting of kitchen benches, chairs, a ladder, and other pieces of furniture. I smiled as, a little as I did this, for I didn't believe for a minute that in the case of a pogrom, we would be able to save ourselves in this way. But I built this barricade over and over again, got up at first every morning to take it down and put everything back into place so the servants would not notice our fear. They were afraid of their own household help and tried desperately to do whatever they could to provide some little measure of physical protection that in their own minds, even they realized this isn't going to work if anything actually happens. Okay. Now, Count Nikolai Ignatiev was the minister of the interior and he blamed the Jews for exploiting the peasants. And that, he said, is the real reason for this pogrom, that the Jews are at fault. They, they brought it upon themselves. When government officials now speak about how Jews brought upon themselves mass violence, those maskilim who had believed in the project of Russification turned against their former ideology. And several of them become proto-Zionists, or rather I should say, Chovevetzion, leaders in the Chibat Zion movement of the 1880s. Uh, so this is a time of Bilu, but Yaakov Lechuv and Alcha, and Chibat Zion. Yeah. So this is the other side of the story of what we learned last year, uh-huh. about this explosion and immigration yes. from all of these parts of Russia and Eastern Europe. To America. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like they just decided. Correct. Correct. Right. So 
it wasn't so easy to get out, but you could, you could sneak across the border. Later, the border would open up officially. So the, for those paying attention at home, uh, the discussion was about immigration to America. This is the beginning of mass migration of Jews out of Eastern Europe to either Western Europe or more likely to the Eastern seaboard of the United States, to New York and other American cities. So Moshe Leib Lillianblum becomes a, a big time Zionist having first been an Orthodox rabbi, then having been a, a, a Russified maskil, now becomes a leader of Chibat Zion because he sees the Russian government is not our friend and he, all our efforts at, at assimilating and acculturating have proved uh, irrelevant. The details of the 1881 pogrom were sent by uh, a committee that put together a dossier and was sent by Rabbi Yitzhak inspector of Kovna to Lord Nathaniel Rothschild in London. And the, the dossier included not just vague statements about, oh, a lot of Jews got hurt, but rather the names of specific people put a name to a, to a number. Uh, and the, the, and it, well, a lot of people got hurt. In the pogroms of 1881, the initial phase of the pogroms, uh, we don't know exactly how many were killed, but it was not an insignificant number. Um, Probably not. In the most likely, but 3,000, we do suspect. So, people could go to jail for fighting back. Yes, absolutely. But that wasn't, that, that did not popularly happen in the 1880s, but it happened in 1903 and onward. They would fight back. Okay. So, this information was brought to, Lon- to London and was published in the Times of London in January of 1882. A major rally was held in London on February 1st, but Prime Minister William Gladstone refused to send resolutions or petitions signed by British Jews to the Russian government. Why not? Was he an anti-Semite too? So possibly the answer is because one nation does not interfere in the internal affairs of another nation, even when that internal affair is an anti-Semitic atrocity. Okay, so but the other reason is and, and, the, and the British government uh, said so fairly explicitly, there was the strong possibility that likely to harm more than to help the Jewish population, that a public outcry by a foreign government and foreign Jews with respect to the internal affairs of, of, of Russia and its, its treatment of Russian Jews was going to backfire, was going to backfire. So and better... Yes. Okay. So people felt that way in America when Stephen Wise was having rallies against Nazi treatment of Jews in Germany in 1933, 34, 35, 36. The American Jewish committee types who said, you know, don't make a don't make a ruckus. It'll make things worse for the Jews under under, under Hitler's thumb. And in the Soviet Jewry era, there were those who said, if we cause too much trouble, Brezhnev or whomever will will make it worse for the Jews. So th- this is probably the first time that line of reasoning plays a role in Jewish history, but obviously not the last time. It'll happen again and again and again, maybe even to this day. What am I referring to? The Israeli government today, not taking a hard line against Putin out of fear of what could happen to Russian Jews if uh, you know Israel sides too heavily with the Ukrainians. So not to, 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 so not to, not to make a, 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 a judgment, but the, the wisdom of that, of that course of action but it's a course of action. 
And that begins basically right then and there in the 1880s. Okay. It's more than that in the Iraq case. Today, we have the Syrian versions of bombs. Yes, yes, it's more, it's more complicated. You're right. This. Okay, so the um, Russia did not appreciate outsiders criticizing them. And the government responded. A government uh, report said the following, for, pu- for public consumption to the outside world. Any attempt on the part of another government to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people can only have the result of calling forth the resentment of the lower classes and thereby unfavorably uh, affect the condition of Russian Jews. Basically, it's like blackmail. Uh, you know, if you say too much, our people are will be roused into uh, action and they'll kill a bunch of your friends, so be quiet. Uh, the Tsar ignored the disapproving comments coming from the United States and France and Italy and other places. Okay. But Russian pogroms began hurting the economy. Chaos and lawlessness was bad for business. Jewish leaders, uh, Jewish lenders refused to make loans because they knew those loans would never be repaid in this kind of an environment. There was a rise of unemployment even beyond the pale. Ignatiev called for the expulsion of Jews from all rural areas. Other ministers called for a more mild approach, afraid of the economic uh, consequences of too much population disruption. The result was the temporary laws, or the May laws, passed on May 3rd, 1882. Although they were supposed to be temporary, they lasted for the next 35 years until the day the Tsar abdicated in 1917. Um, Areas where Jews were allowed to live became more and more restricted. So Jews were kicked out of farmland, kicked out of the border regions, and crammed into a narrower uh, sliver of the pale. Also, numerous clauses laws were imposed on Jewish students. What were the limits? Jews were limited to 10% of the student population at secondary schools and universities in the pale, 5% 5% outside the pale, and 3% in Moscow and St. Petersburg. That's not a very high percentage. Now, as a percentage of the overall population, it wasn't terrible, but Jews are smarter than the overall population. So therefore, the Jews are going to suffer. They, 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 they pass the SATs, they want to go to school. By comparison, you know, in a half far, far, far higher ratio than the Gentiles. Okay. Uh, the temporary rules did work as a way of tamping down violent outbursts. Pogroms were kept to a minimum. Between 1882 and 1903 with Kishinev, there were only 10 isolated pogroms, each one triggered by local conditions, and none of them was especially bloody. Still, uh, yeah, but it wasn't like a thing that spread from town to town. Still, signs were troubling. Anti-Semitism was on the rise and winning popular support. When Alexander III died in 1894 and was succeeded by his son, Nicholas II, the the hostile policies continued and were intensified. So, uh, right-wing economist Sergei Sharapov wrote in the 1890s, quote, the closely woven web of international Jewry, unconditional in its solidarity, which can draw on vast reserves, is concerned that the present situation should be maintained at all costs, whereby international Jewries increase their wealth, 
the productive classes are destroyed and the old Christian structure of Europe collapses. Basically, from the 1890s and on, under Nicholas II, there was this growing theory that Jews dominate the whole world and are trying to destroy the Christian states. This will eventually lead to the protocols, which we'll talk about at length next week. We'll spend the whole session on the protocols. Um, but even before that forgery was written, a lot of public figures in government and outside of government really believe this sort of stuff, that Jewish solidarity was like unbreakable, that Jews had vast reserves, both in terms of population and financial resources and political clout in other parts of the world. Constantine Pobedonotsev was a czarist advisor and was quoted, maybe incorrectly, as making the following comment in 1894, the year Nicholas II took over. Quote, a third of the Jews will be converted, a third of the Jews will immigrate, and a third will die of hunger. So that didn't ultimately happen. Uh, the, the dying of hunger part, I mean, I mean, yes, I mean, Jews died of hunger in the Ukraine during the Soviet period, and there was poverty throughout the Tsarist period. Uh, a third converting also didn't really happen. More than a third emigrated. But suffice it to say, the idea was, we'll solve the Jewish problem by persecution and bad treatment, the Jews will cease to exist. By hook or by crook, one way or the other. He mocked the ability of Jews to till the soil. Quote, the characteristics of the Jewish race are parasitic. For their sustenance, they require the presence of another race as host, although they remain aloof and self-contained. Take from them a living, or living organism, put them on a rock, and they will die. They cannot cultivate the soil. So his theory was, you can't make the Jews productive. Any effort at productivization previously was a failure. Uh, and the Jews will always be this parasitic class. So we don't want them. We want them gone. The Tsarist regime wanted to preserve the traditional estate structure of the nobility and the pre-capitalist peasantry. So Russia doesn't want socialism, but it also doesn't want capitalism. It wants the corporatist, crony, sort of crony capitalist system of pre-modern times. Also, Nicholas II was very suspicious of any non-Russian nationalistic activity. Why? Well, he doesn't want a Polish uprising or Ukrainian uprising or Lithuanian uprising, and he doesn't want a Jewish uprising. Therefore, Zionism is illegal. What are the consequences of Zionism being illegal? No, it means that official Zionist activity in Russia happens beyond the borders of Russia, that all the major meetings will happen where? Either in Germany or in Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, in Katowice or something like that, but not in Tsarist-held territory. Okay. Of course, yes, and eventually it will become semi-legal, but the, the major events are dominated by Russian representatives, but take place outside of Russia. Yeah. Now, to, to turn attention away from himself, Nicholas united the Russian people against a common enemy, the Jew. His agents revived the blood libel and instigated pogroms. Kishinev in 1903 started with an accusation about a Christian child being killed to, to use blood for matzah for Pesach. The government-backed patriotic society called the Black Hundreds took to the streets and demanded justice. 
and a pogrom ensued. But the government allowed this to happen. How do we know that? Because there were 12,000 troops in the vicinity of Kishnev and only 300 rioters. Had they wanted to suppress it, they could have done so easily. And when martial law was declared two days later, the pogrom ended immediately. So it never had to start. The government wanted it to happen. Okay. So news reports said that 120 Jews were killed. Actually, only 50 were killed, but 500 were badly injured, and a lot of property was damaged. After Kishnev, it was decided, Jews will fight back. Uh, Jabotinsky becomes involved at this point, and you have self-defense groups in a variety of Jewish cities in the Pale. Okay. In 1905, the Tsar loses some power after a disastrous defeat in the Russo-Japanese War which was partly financed by Jacob Schiff paying the Japanese to fight the Russians because he hated Russia. Now, forced to make constitutional changes and uh, agreeing to a Duma, like a pseudo-parliament, the Tsar tried to prevent Jews from voting in Duma elections, but he was unsuccessful. The Jews gained voting rights. The government organized a massive demonstration to to protest these liberal changes, meaning the the traditionalists protested against the liberals. And the protest turned into pogrom against the Jews. The uprising ended in 1907 with the Tsar firmly back in control. A new plan was to blame the Jews for plotting to take over the world. And the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a hoax, was published. And next week we'll talk about that at length, how 20 editions of it were, were published in Russia before 1917. Mass, the mass basis for anti-Semitism after 1905 was the Union of the Russian people, the URP. And the Black Hundred organizations went on to do additional pogroms throughout 1905 and 1906. The consequence of that was the largest number of Jewish immigrants to America in any one year was 1906, because it got dangerous and people head for the hills. Okay, the Bayless trial, which we spoke about a number of years ago, is again, turning what had been a, a red light district murder into an accusation of blood libel, of ritual murder. Bayless was acquitted and went on to move to the United States and become something of a celebrity uh, and do appearances at the Catskill Hotels. But what the trial showed that your average Russian was willing to believe in the 20th century that ritual murders really do happen. Okay. Now, during World War I, Russia expelled all the Jews from vast regions near the front. When the Tsar abdicated in 1917 and the Kerensky government was formed, Jews were emancipated within weeks of that provisional government. So Jewish emancipation in Russia, the last holdout in Europe, happens as soon as the absolutist dictatorship of the Tsar falls. In the last three minutes that we have, I want to explain something about pogroms. Pogroms did not happen all the time. They were concentrated into three chronological periods, 1881 to 1884, 1905 to 1906, and the Civil War era of 1917 to 1921. They got bloodier over time. In the 1880s, the attacks were mainly on property. By 1905, the attacks were largely on the person of the Jew. People got killed. Active participation by government operatives was more likely in those places where Jews had self-defense organizations. In other words, if the Jews fight back, the government will throw a counterpunch. About 3,000 Jews died in 1905, while 150,000 Jews were killed in the pogroms of the Civil War period. All pogroms happened when the political order appeared to be unstable. 
for example, after the assassination of Alexander II, after the 1905 revolution and the 1917 revolution, the sense of political instability emboldened rioters to kill and harm Jews. Meaning if you think the political order is unstable, you pay no price for aggressive action. So be as aggressive as you want and kill your adversary, the Jew. Okay, now, uh, there were outbreaks of violence in Odessa, for example, in 1821, 59, and 71. Violence in those places was when Jews achieved material success. Outside Russia, pogroms tended to happen when Jews were on the verge of achieving political rights. In Russia, they never had political rights, so prosperity was the, the jealousy factor that leads to some pogrom. There were pogroms in the Ukraine, but we should distinguish between the new Ukraine, the new areas to the south, which were opened up to Jews in the late 1790s, where success, material success of non-Orthodox modern Jews leads to an outburst against Jews, versus in the northern reaches and the western reaches of the Ukraine, which was the old Ukraine, and that was old-fashioned Christian anti-Semitism, harking back to the days of 1648 and Chimelnitsky. Okay, economic dislocation and a worldwide agrarian depression led people to believe that under conditions of free trade, Goyim could not compete with Jews. In other words, the system had to be stacked against the Jew in order for the Goy to have a fair shake. That was what was, was believed, that capitalistic reforms and modernity were Jewish inventions and out to harm us. Loyalists and revolutionaries clashed in October 1905. It didn't take much to set off attacks on Jews. Merely firing a shot or defacing a portrait of Nicholas II was enough to set off a pogrom. Okay. Now, with the exception of the intelligentsia and workers in Moscow and St. Petersburg, every layer of society, every layer of society was susceptible to pogromist agitation, not just low-class hooligans. The, the petty bourgeoisie, actually, were the ones who were most likely to engage in pogroms. The pogroms of 1917 began with minor incidents due to people being hungry. Russia was desperately poor at that point. The war had devastated them. People were starving. All right, so you do things that aren't too kosher. Things got bl very bloody in 1919. When the White Army, the White Army, not the Red Army, when the White Army which were the pro-Czarist, pro-monarchical forces disbanded and disintegrated, disgruntled former soldiers lashed out at Jews. Large-scale anti-Semitic attacks were, uh, were likely because of propaganda circulated at that time. The officer corps was convinced of its own accusations against Jews that they were guilty of espionage, sabotage, and, of course, profiteering. So if you believe that about the Jews, you don't feel guilty when you attack them. Out-of-control individual soldiers would do all sorts of cruel things. And tens, and, ten, tens of thousands of Jews were killed in the process. But it wasn't just Russians who did so. Ukrainians also did so. The Ukrainian nationalist leader Simon Petliura was a leader of a gang that killed many, many thousands of Jews. But Petliura got his comeuppance. What happened to him? And when did I previously discuss this? So I'll now un allow you to unmute. If you get this right, I will be very, very impressed. If you remember, if anyone knows when Petliura reemerged in Jewish history and how I previously discussed it. Anybody have an idea? Um, 
So Petliura was assassinated by a Jew, Shalom Schwartzbard, in Paris in 1926. He was tried and acquitted because of the political nature of the crime and that he killed a person who had killed his own family a a half a decade earlier in another country. Which Jewish hero, so to speak, tried to use that as a precedent in his own defense? Who? Who wants to tell me? I just mentioned him last week. Herschel, Herschel Greenspan, when he killed Von Rath, his lawyers tried to use the precedent of of Petliura's assassination by Schwarzbard that, hey, when a Jew kills someone who had it coming, you let let him off the hook, especially in France. Okay, now, um, so the... um, the Red Army also was guilty of atrocities against Jews. The Red Cavalry under Beduni uh, killed many Jews on the retreat from Poland in 1920. The Re- Lenin didn't seriously investigate this once he took power, although he was a bloody guy, and he executed 400 uh, Red Army soldiers for their involvement in it. Okay, so we'll stop here. And next time, how was that? Millions, 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 four or five million. Okay, so we'll stop now. Next week, we'll get to uh, not history, but the falsehoods of the protocols of the elders of Zion. And what I'll do is, aside from analyzing the text itself, we'll see when was this printed? When was it reprinted? Who tries to make use of it? And how, even decades after it was known to be a forgery, it still proves relevant that people bring it back for their own purposes. Okay, a good night, everyone. See you next week.